Hi, Pastor Anthony here. At Vintage Faith Church, we stand behind the Bible's claim to be the Word of God, and we believe that the Scriptures contain everything needed for life and godliness. The Scriptures testify to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray that this recording stirs your faith towards that end. This is in no way meant to be a substitute for the local church gathering, which we believe is critical to your growth as a Christian and your walk with Christ. We pray that you will find the sermon edifying and challenging. Thank you for listening. Well, I don't know if you know anything about ancient history, but um, in ancient times, uh, to to approach a a king, and, and in particularly to approach the inner court um, of a king was risky business. You didn't just approach a king if you had a request. To approach a king in ancient times meant that it could actually cost you your life. If the king was in a bad mood, if the king was frustrated, if the king didn't like what you were requesting, your head could be chopped off. This is how kings worked in ancient times. Certainly there were better kings, more uh, benevolent kings than others, but kings in general in ancient times could fly off the handle, even if you knew them. We see this in the book of Esther, Esther 4.11, and she is thinking about approaching the king, and, and she says this, all the king's servants And the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. So I I want you to just hold this idea in the back of your mind as we go through the the verse today. This is, we're not in Esther, we're not preaching through Esther, but here's the idea. Just hold it in the back of your mind. To approach a king could mean death. You don't approach a king with a request. All right. So let's begin. Hebrews 4.14, and and just before actually we we go there, um, one of the reasons why we at Vintage Faith preach through books of the Bible is because you're not going to get every week, week in and and week out, my kind of hobby horse, what what Anthony's into um, this week or or this month or or this year. The reason we go through books of the Bible is because we are going going to get the whole counsel of God. Amen. Amen. And, and, and we do that because if you were here with us last week and even the week before, you heard two warning passages. Warnings that, that to turn away from Christ, there's nothing for you. Um, and this week, you're going to get comfort. You're going to get the, the gentleness of Christ. And they're both true. They're both true. And I, I know that there's churches out there that, that like one of those better than the other, and that's all that they're preaching. But when we preach through books of the Bible, you're going, going to get the whole counsel of God, and our souls and our hearts and our minds need that. 
We need it. We need the whole counsel of God. All right, let's, let's get into it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. The next three to, to four chapters, the writer of Hebrews is going to unpack this idea of high priest. So I'm not going to get into it too much today. I'm just going to say this. The high priest was the one who mediated between the sinful people and a holy God. That's, that's the priest function. And the high priest would once a year go into the holy of holies with a blood sacrifice to offer a sacrifice for Israel. So just, again, we're going to get into great detail about the high priest. We're, today, we're, we're going to just kind of leave it at that. So since we have a great high priest, we have a great mediator, the one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. He's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Probably what the writer means by he's passed through the heavens is he has ascended into the heavens. He's ascended. He's now at the right hand of the Father, advocating for you and for me if you know Jesus. And he's passed through the heavens, and he's the Son of God. Again, back to, to uh, the earlier chapters of Hebrews, we had a lot of emphasis on he is the Son. Remember, Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Joshua. And now we're here, and he is the greater high priest because he's passed through the heavens, not the copies in the temple, not the shadow, but the actual heavens. He's the Son of God. And then the writer is going to say, since this is true, let us hold fast our confession. There's a point in your walk as a believer and many of you have done this, and I believe it's designed by God. This is, this is God's good design. And it's, it's as if God says, do you really believe this message? Do you really believe this message? Okay, confess it in front of the church. We, we see this in, in we're, we're Baptists here, so we, we uh, baptize believers in Presbyterian congregations. They have a moment because they're baptized as kids. There's a moment where they have to confess to the church. This is part and parcel of the faith, and I believe that it is a good grace and gift from God. We see this here in 1 Timothy. Paul, talking to Timothy, he says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 
So again, we, we saw this in January last year. We saw this in the summer. We had people who, who stood up and said, Jesus, I believe he's changed my life. They, they either gave a testimony or I asked questions like, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that he suffered and died for your sins and was risen on the third day, rose for your justification and for your hope? And they would say, yes, I believe, yes, I believe, and then we would baptize them. That is the good confession. I believe that is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about, saying we have this high priest, this great high priest. You're thinking about turning back to Judaism because it's safe. Don't go there. Don't do it. There's nothing left for you there. Remember the confession that you made. Remember when you stood up in front of the brothers and sisters and made the confession. Remember the confession. Hold fast to that confession. And maybe you're in here and you haven't done that, and, and I, I realize that there's a, there's a wrestling. I can remember Amy and I years ago when um, we were coming to faith reading uh, the Bible, and I can remember there was a point in church singing worship songs, probably had a tear in my eye, and I'm thinking, what would my friends think of me right now? Like, like I was part of the, you know, the, the bro crew at, at, at work and, 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 and all of that. And I'm like, these guys would be laughing at me. They would be mocking me. Um, but when, as you know, when you take hold of faith, there comes a point where it's, do I fear men or do I fear God? And I believe that confession that, that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is, um, is that, that point of confession in front of the body. Remember your confession. Hold fast to your confession. Church, when, when you're struggling, when you're doubting, when you're having a bad week, bad month, bad year, when sometimes the story of Christ and Christianity just seems too fantastical to you, remember your confession. Remember your confession. Hold fast to that confession. All right, let's shift gears here. I'm going to ask a question. Um, I want you to think, think about this, but here, here's two questions. Number one, um, have you ever asked, does God know what I'm going through right now? And the follow-up question is, does he care about what I'm going through right now? How does he feel about what I'm going through right now? Is God, like the, the deist would say, cold and distant? Did he get, put the watch together and then wind it up and say, here you go, I, I'm, I'm stepping back? Or is God intimately involved with every detail of your life, every thought in your life, every moment in your life? Hebrews 4.15 goes on to say, of this great high priest, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In the book of Hebrews, we're going to visit this theme again and again. It's the humanity of Christ. It's why we celebrate on Christmas Jesus Christ being born in Bethlehem. It's why all of it matters, because 
Jesus Christ is fully God. Remember back to the beginning, he is the radiance the, the, of the glory of God. He is the brightness of the Father shining forth. And he's fully human. He's fully human. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted as we are. The text here says, in every respect as we are. Yet, he never gave in. He never sinned. And we'll come back to why that's important. I think uh, in our flesh, in our natural humanity, we're, we're naturally people that like to work. Uh, work for earning, work for affirmation. Uh, we're works-based creatures. I think that creeps in even to our relationship with the Lord, that often when we're working and we're doing and we're, we're you know, serving and, and maybe you're reading uh, the, the Bible, maybe you're listening to it, reading a book, you're praying, things are going well, you probably naturally feel like, hey, things are, things are good, I feel close to God, and that's not, you know, do those things, keep doing those things, and that's not altogether untrue. But I think in this text, it's going to tell us something else, that there is a time where God gets close to us, and that's not in our strength, it's in our weakness. It's in our weakness. For me, this looks like I have a morning routine, um, and I say routine, I say that word lightly, um, but I have a routine, and, and if I wake up, have my coffee, read the Bible, pray, go for a run, listen to an audio book, um, take my shower, and then finally begin working, it's like, ah, it's a good day, right? I'm, I'm doing well. Um, you know, those are kind of the mountaintop um, experiences. But the reality is, I know this in my own life, and I know it's true. The times I felt closest to God have been my weakest times. My weakest times. Times when you feel betrayed. Times when you're struggling with sin. Times when things just are not going well in the orbit of your people, your, your life. And there's nothing that feels good in you when that's happening. But, and I know this is true of many of you, God moves in in a way there that is unique. He is there in a tangible way, and you've all experienced this, I've experienced it, in a way that is just, it is who he is. It is who God is. He is one who moves in to pain and suffering and weakness. He doesn't turn his face in disgust. He moves in. He's not afraid of your sin. He's not afraid of your weakness. Dane Ortland has a an illustration, and, and, and um, I'm going to use it kind of in a different way, but I want to give him credit. But he says this. He says, imagine um, a remote village, the remote, a remote village in, in a jungle. Um, imagine for a moment that the population, say, 1,000 people, 
And half of them have this illness that's, that's killing them. Kids dying, women, men, just people dying. Just they're in agony. And there's a doctor, and the doctor has the cure, and he travels into the remote village, and he sees all the people being ravaged by the disease, but the villagers don't trust him, so they don't come. And he's got the cure. He's got the, the cure that, that can help them in their, in their weakness and their pain. He has the cure to give them life. And, and once one of them or maybe another and a few start coming, does the joy of that doctor increase or decrease? It certainly increases. That's what he's there for. He's He's, that's his role. He's coming in. He, his joy is going to increase when people come and he can minister to their pain and to their weakness. And that's true of you with Christ. Even now, it's true of you. Whatever pain you're in, whatever weakness you're in, when you come to him with that, his Joy, Christ's joy is enlarged because that's the kind of Savior he is. The text says right here that he is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's his role. He's the, the Savior. He's the mediator. He wants to lean in to you. Thomas Goodwin says this of Jesus. He's an old Puritan um, he says that the glory and happiness of Christ is enlarged as his members come to have the purchase of his death more and more laid forth upon them. So as when their sins are pardoned, their hearts more sanctified, their spirits comforted, then comes he to see the fruit of his labor. Friends, Jesus came with a purpose. And we know from, from reading the Gospels and preaching through the Gospels that he set his face like a flint to Jerusalem, to the cross. He wasn't going to let anyone get in his way. And he died on the cross and he died for you to bring sin sinners to the Father. But it doesn't stop there. The cross is not something that we graduate from. It's not something that, hey, once you, you believe and you, your sins are forgiven and now you move on to the, to the law. No, you and I need grace every single day. Let him minister to you. Let him minister to you through the cross. Be washed in his grace. Luke 15 Verse 7 says, just so I tell you that there will be more joy. He has joy in this. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Again, I, I think the problem here with, with the sympathy of, of Christ and our weakness is that we often feel like we graduate from the cross, that we graduate 
from the gospel. And that's just not true. It's just not true. He is gentle. He is lowly. He is wanting to lean into your pain. And we, we, I, I know we do this because I do it when, when we're in pain or we're doubting our, our, our faith, when, when maybe we are caught up in some kind of sin. We, we tend to, to move away from God, to move away from his people, to move away from him. We think that, that he's just disappointed in us, but, but he wants to move closer. This is what he died for. This is, why he, he, this, is, this is why we need a mediator. Goodwin again goes on to say, take our hands and lay them upon Christ's breast and let us feel how his heart beats and his affections yearn towards us. Have you just, I want to stop there. Have you just think about that for a moment? And, and we have, there's, there's scriptural evidence in here, when, and I don't want to get into that, but this is true. His heart yearns for you now, in glory, even now. As he's at the right hand of the Father, he is still human. It says, even now as he is in glory, those word, these words in Hebrews 4.15 are to encourage believers against all that may discourage them from Christ's heart towards them, even though he is in heaven and glorified now. So what Goodwin is getting at, and he's putting his finger on something, I think that, that we all just need to keep remembering that yes, Jesus is, is the radiance of the Father. Yes, all judgment is going to be his. Yes, he's coming in glory. Yes, he will be coming and, and there will be blood and there's, his wrath will be poured out. But, but for his people, if you know him, if you're in Christ, his heart aches and beats for you with compassion. Pure compassion. Not the compassion of a human being fallen and sinful like you and me, but pure, right compassion. Charles Spurgeon once said, there, of the 89 chapters in the four Gospels, there is only one place where Jesus bears his own heart, of talks about his heart. And it's Matthew eleven twenty nine. He says, take my yoke upon you, Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. He is gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Jesus Christ is gentle and lowly. There is nothing you can do, no sin that you can do, that he's going to look at you and turn his face the other way. He loves you, and he cares for you, and he wants your heart. He wants to take your pain. He wants to take your problems. He wants that relationship with you. And he experienced all of this weakness. The reason that, that he can do it is because Jesus Christ is fully human. So it's not that he doesn't know what it's like to be human. He knows. He's been tempted, the text says, in every way. In every respect, but he did not sin. This is why we can trust him. 
He has the power, Hebrews is later going to say, the power of an indestructible life. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He sympathizes with us, not like we sometimes sympathize with each other, where maybe someone will come and, hey, talking about a sin, and, and you know, we don't want to get in an argument, so we're like, oh, that's all right. He's not going to do that. What does he do with the, with, 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 um, the women and men in the gospel? Hey, go and sin no more. He, he gives them grace and he says, go ahead, but stop that. Don't sin anymore. All right, let's, let's go on. So Jesus Christ is, is gentle. He's, he's lowly. Um, and then the rest of Hebrews says this. Let us then with confidence... We might have a translation that says with boldness. Let us with, then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. All right, back to, to the opening of the sermon with the king in, in the book of Esther. Esther would not go into the inner court at that time. She eventually does after a lot of prayer, but she's scared. By the way, the king is her husband. And she's scared to go. I mean, that might be why she's scared too, but um, who, who knows what that relationship is like. But, but that is legitimate. She, she won't go into the inner court and she cites that you, you know if, if someone goes in to the king without an invite, they, they could die. But Hebrews here is talking about another king, King Jesus talking about another throne. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, we can with confidence draw near to this throne, Jesus' throne, the throne of grace. This isn't confidence like puff chest, like, hey, here I am, Jesus. This is confidence that you're not going to get your head chopped off. This is confidence that you're approaching a gentle and lowly king who is for you and not against you. Think for a moment. I know we've all had these different people in our life, but think for, for a moment. Maybe it was a boss. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a friend. Um, you have friends that, that you can approach, and you know they're not going to hit you with a baseball bat over the head with whatever you're going to tell them, right? But then you have other friends that, or a boss maybe that, that you're afraid to approach. You're like, man, every time I go in that guy's office, um, I feel like he wants to chop my head off. I, I know I used to have a boss like that. Um, but this is talking about the king of kings the one who has all authority. And it's saying we can approach with confidence. We don't have to be afraid. You can approach Jesus with confidence. On what basis can we approach him? Well, it's everything we just talked about. Um, a quote from Mark Rogap in Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy. He says this, What is the basis of this confidence? Why should we bring our heartfelt requests to God? The answer is connected to Jesus' experience of the brokenness of our world and his sympathy. We ask boldly because he understands deeply. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. 
Jesus lived a life of lament. He knows the sorrows of injustice, hypocrisy, false accusations, physical weakness, temptations, betrayal, and feeling abandoned. That becomes the basis for our bold requests. When you think about God, do you think that he's angry with you? When you think about God, do you think he's got anger and and wrath for you? Because if if you do, I, I guarantee you won't approach him. You won't do what this text is saying. And you might be in here and say, well, I don't think that, I know. But functionally, what do you believe about God? Can you approach God with all confidence? Can you approach God like David who just cries out to God with complaints? See, if, you, if, if anywhere you believe that God has wrath or, or anger for you, Number one, you're you're not going to approach him. Number two, if you don't approach him, you're not going to be washed with his, his, um, what he is here for, what Jesus is here for, his his love and care for you, a sinner. We know that that he died, he died on the cross, and and the wrath of the Father was poured out on him. So if you're in Christ, how much wrath is left for you? None. Nothing. It's all been poured out on Jesus. There's no condemnation. There's no wrath. Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ Jesus, completely different story. There's wrath. And if that's you, believe. Believe the gospel. Believe that he died for your sin. Believe um, in the resurrection. Find hope in the resurrection. What might it look like if we really believed the gospel? I'm preaching to myself here too. What might life look like if we really, really believed that the gospel is true? My answer to that would be freedom. Complete and utter freedom. Freedom to live a righteous life. Freedom to live without being afraid of your shadow. Freedom to live without being afraid what people think about you. Freedom to live when you're sinned against, that it's not ruining your day, your week, your month. Freedom to be righteous because the righteousness isn't yours. It's his. And it's perfect. It's what we need. Freedom to confess your sins when you sin rather than justifying your sin. I'm telling you, if we fully grasp the gospel, if we just take it as a church and run with it, we will be the most joyful, free people um, on this earth. Amen. Amen. There's a, an, an old quote from, from G.K. Chesterton. And this quote had an impact on me early on in, in my faith because um, some of you know um, parts of my story, but I, I got really mixed up in, in some of the um, just, old, just 
twisted new age kind of religious stuff when I was in college and um, was reading a lot of those books and just had a, a really confused idea um, about God. And, um, but Chesterton uh, wrote something that, that when I read it, I'm like, that, that was my experience when, when I really just fully grasped the gospel. And, and he says this, the modern philosopher had told me again and again that I was in the right place. And I still felt depressed, even in acquiescence. But when I heard that I was in the wrong place, my soul sang for joy like a bird in the spring. And, and, and forget about the word place for a minute. It, what he's getting at is when I, when I heard that I was a sinner and that all these thoughts in, in, in my heart and all of this stuff inside of me that, that I was trying to say, hey, this is okay, you're good, you're a good person, but then you know you're not because you have a thought about something and you know you shouldn't have that thought. But when you hear that you're a sinner and you go to Jesus, there's freedom. Amen. And it's not just a one time. It's constant. We continue as Christians. Look to the cross. Look to the cross. Look to the cross. When you're feeling condemned, when you're feeling condemned, oh, hey, what about that thing you did years ago? What about that? The whisper in your ear, just whatever. I don't know if you speak out loud or you speak in your mind. Just say, hey, it's worse than that. But Jesus. But Jesus. No condemnation in Christ. None. None. Um, all right, practically, so what, what could it look like to approach God with confidence? Well, we'll we've, we've kind of been like just confess. Don't be afraid to confess. Don't, don't run from God in your sin. Run to him. But there's another um, way that I, I want to touch on here. In the Psalms, we see time and time and time again of the writers of the Psalms pouring out their hearts. They're, they're constantly pouring out their hearts, their, their, uh, um, their complaints. But, but here's the thing. They, they never stop with complaining. It always transitions from a complaint to God's promises, praising him and extolling him and, and asking him to act. Let me just read Psalm 25, 6 to 7. Sometimes it happens like this. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old, of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. So this is an example of approaching God with confidence. The, the, the writer of the psalm is saying, remember who you are, Lord. You're steadfast. You're loving. You forgive sin. Remember that. I'm in sin right now, Lord. Remember that. Forgive me. And that's approaching the Lord with confidence. All right. The, the writer ends verse 16. It's the second half of 16 with this. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay? I'm going to take this in, in two parts. First, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. 
Why can we approach God? Because right now it matters. Does God know what is happening in our life? Does he care about what is happening in our life? Absolutely. He wants us to come to him so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. The prophet Isaiah said, A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Do you feel like a bruised reed? I don't know. I know where some of you are at right now, but I don't know where all of you are at. Um, Do you feel like life's really beat you up? Do you feel like you have little strength at this moment? Do you feel like you've been failing? Maybe things haven't been going the way that you want them to go. Jesus can heal you. He heals the bruised reed. He's not going to snap the bruised reed. He heals the bruised reed. Are you a smoldering wick? Maybe you're just getting by. Maybe you've said, I don't even know how I'm still here. It's just one day after another. I feel like I'm hanging on by a thread. There's no gas left in the tank. You're a smoldering wick. Jesus came for you. He came for you. Come to him. Come to him. Don't stand off in the distance and and not trust him. He is there. He's got the cure. He's got the balm for your your soul. He's got it. Um, You just have to, to come to him so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. But here, I want to end on on this here. Um, In time of need, uh, so as I was, when when I go through a sermon, I'm looking at the Greek or or the Hebrew, and um, you're looking at different translations. And something stuck out to me, and it was confirmed by a few others. Um, uh, This phrase, in in time of need, it's better if it was said like this, Therefore, let us approach with boldness the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace for a well-timed help. The Greek word means well-timed or a time that is suitable or advantageous or it would mean seasonably timed. So I think the ESV kind of misses uh, this translation, but the idea here is God's grace and his mercy and his help are perfectly timed. If it's up to our timetable, we want that now. Come on, like now, God, can you please take this away from me now? But his mercy and his grace, they're perfectly timed, seasonably timed. There's a good quote from John Piper here. He says, I think we need to be focused on the grace of God's timing. When we have a need, we feel very strongly about when God should act, usually now. It's not natural for us to think that God's grace will be shown as much in the timing of it as in the form of it. But Hebrews 4.16 reminds us to seek God not only for the kind of grace we need, but also for the timing of the grace we need. You and I are receiving God's mercy and grace all of the time, but sometimes that might look like allowing us to suffer, allowing the trial to continue when we are just ready for it to be gone. We need to remember that God's timing is perfect. 
We need to remember this, that he is sovereign, that, that nothing happens without him causing it, allowing it, however you want to say, he is sovereign, this whole world. And I know that brings up questions of evil, and, and I, I get that, but don't, don't make the mistake because of the question of evil of somehow in your mind creating a God that's lesser. Because when I read the Bible, I find a God that is absolutely sovereign over any, everything and can intervene at any moment and nothing happens without his knowledge or his doing. He is that big and how we fit evil in and, and sickness into that, there's a mystery there. But God is absolutely sovereign. Matthew, in Matthew 10, he says it like this, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you. You are of more value than many sparrows. Every hair on your head or your body, every, every moment is within God's sphere of sovereignty. All of it. And for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. Even what you're suffering, even the trial, there's a, a purpose in it, there's a reason for it, and, and it, it's not always clear to us. So friends, we worship this God, this absolute, sovereign, powerful God who also can sympathize with us and our weakness, and our humanity. I mean, this is, this is the beauty of Jesus. This is why every Sunday we come here and we're worshiping Jesus because there's no one like him. Fully God, fully human, the one mediator between God and men. We're about to take the, the Lord's Supper together. Um, this is a, a sacrament or ordinance um, for his people. It's a sign and a symbol to those who are in the new covenant, to those who are in Christ. Um, if you're not there yet, if you, you can't say that Jesus is Lord, that he's Savior, we would just ask that you pass. Nobody's going to judge you. Um, we're not going to look down at you for not taking it. There's nothing special in these elements. Um, it's bread and it's juice, but through faith, we're strengthened by taking it. Through faith in Christ, we're strengthened. This is given to us by God, um, and, and it is uh, something that the church does to, to look to him and remember his death. But I want to, to leave you before we come to the table just with, with a few, few things, because I want to use this time to, to meditate upon um, his humanity and his sympathy for, for you. Number one, he, he is here. Believe it. I know it's hard to believe. We're, we're children of the Enlightenment, right? We don't see him. Maybe he's not here. The Bible says, the Word of God says, he's among us when we gather. Jesus Christ is among us. Believe that. Take hold of that. 
think about that as we're taking the supper. Pray to God. If, if you're doubting that, pray to God for, for, for faith. He is alive. He's not on the cross anymore. He's alive. He's at the right hand of, of God, and he is here in some mysterious way. They're both true. And then I would just press on you and say, whatever it is that you're going through, your pain, your weakness, your valley, maybe it's sin, talk to him. Talk to him before you take the, the elements. I want to give you some time to think, confess, repent, ask for healing. Ask for healing for, for your heart. Maybe it's um, spiritual. Maybe it's you're angry at people. Maybe it's uh, you're angry at your spouse. Maybe it's kids, you're angry at your parents. Uh, who, who not confess to God? Love your brother and sister. Get your heart right before him. Thanks for tuning in with us. We hope that you found this sermon edifying, encouraging, and challenging. To learn more about Vintage Faith Church, visit vintagefaithcicero.com. And of course, if you live in the area, we invite you to worship the Lord with us on Sunday mornings.